earnings. Hey, everybody, time to jump into the stock market, or maybe not. Let's see what's going on here. But hey, we're here with Disrupt TV. And of course, I'm here with Holger Mueller, who's sitting in for our famous guest, Vala Afshar, who's just coming out of Dreamforce. Um, and so we've got three awesome guests. We're going to do introductions from reverse order. Uh, we've got Christy, and we've got Joanne, and we've got Suja. So Christy, quick introductions. Where are you calling in from? And what are we talking about today? Hi, thanks so much for having me and hi to everyone on the line. I am calling in from London, currently on a business trip here. Um, and what are we talking about today? We're talking about uh, the new book that I just published and it was out August 2nd. And it's all about being bold and taking more risks in your career and taking them sooner. So I'm gonna give, talk a little bit about that method and formula. That's wonderful. All right. How's King Charles doing, Christy? <laughs> I just got here, so I can't really report oh, back. Seeing him tomorrow. All right. We'll want an update tomorrow then. Of Sounds course, good. of course. I've been right invited. <laughs> Very cool. Joanne, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, Ray. This is like a second or third time with you on Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me back. Um, I'm in Dallas. And today, what else are we talking about? We're talking about digital manufacturing and digital supply chains, my favorite topic. Really? So can't really? To, uh, catch you up on that. We're definitely talking about that at CCE this year. Super hot topic. Suja, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? You're like a global traveler, so I never know where you are. So Yeah, no, I'm I'm also in Dallas, Texas today. Hello, Joanne and hello, Christy. So um, we are talking about general macro trends and uh, some perspectives as a board member, as an as an executive and operator. We'll talk about some macro trends, how our ELT and the chief executive officers looking at things and where is emerging technology headed? Very, very cool. And uh, with that, I'm going to turn it back to you, Hannah, who's guest producing for us today. And uh, you can do the count and we can go live. So, Okay. Ready, set, go. Everybody. Welcome to Disrupt TV. Uh, this is our episode number 294 with special guest co-host uh, sitting in for Vala Asher, Holger Mueller. So welcome to the show, Holger. As everybody knows, this is the weekly TV show where we actually talk about what are the hot topics in tech, entrepreneurship, leadership, and of course, some special guests and VIPs that often join us. So this week, we've got amazing guests that join us. But uh, Holger, tell a little bit about where, what's, your been, what's your week been like and uh, you know what's new? So uh, great to be here, trying to do my best Vala impression. So Vala this week, that doesn't happen because obviously this week was all about Salesforce Dreamforce conference in San Francisco. And uh, it's really the first time I'm coming back with some positive vibes for me personally, because I care that vendors have a future uh, with platforms changing on your platform strategy. And uh, 
I won't spill the beans, but uh, there's some genius in Genie. We can talk about it in other channels another time. So good to be here. Thanks for having me. I see a lot that's going on there. And thank you for calling in here from San Diego. But hey, I'm thrilled to introduce um, our awesome guests because it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And I'm thrilled to introduce and welcome our speaker who's well-known in healthcare, retail, consumer, tech, cybersecurity, and even industrial manufacturing industries. Suja Chandra, she is a top 25 woman in healthcare based on modern healthcare in 2022. She was listed there, top global innovation tech leader, Forbes inaugural list 2021, top innovation digital leader at Becker's Healthcare and most powerful women in healthcare IT in Becker's in 2019, 2020, 2021, and 2022. There are only select accolades. There's more, so, but she's led operations, technology and digital at large brands, including Walmart, Kimberly Clark, Nestle, and most recently, one of the top healthcare institutions in the world, Common Spirit Health, Suja's on the board of Fortune 15 company Cardinal Health, American Eagle Outfitters, and Bloom Global and Agenda Inc. But that's worth more to Suja, and we're going to find out more. So Suja, welcome to the show, and thank you for spending your Friday with us. Oh my God, I wish I can share the same kind of energy that fights through uh, as, as much as you do, right? But thank you. Thank you for those warm, warm welcome. This is an interesting event, exciting, honored to be here. Super excited. Well, Holger, all yours. So, <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to the show, Suja. Great to have an executive such a variety of different roles, backgrounds. So, the the top of the mind question of everybody is the economy is changing, and things are getting more difficult. You have the perspective of both the CXO and the board perspective. How do boards prepare? What is changing from the top perspective in enterprise right now, given the macroeconomic challenge that we're facing? Yeah, it's a very interesting environment, isn't it? So the inflation rate has been stubbornly high. The interest rates are going up. Hawkish, certainly very interesting Fed uh, actions, as we saw in the last uh, days. Uh, supply chain is a bit easing, a little bit easing, but it's still um, at, uh, at a significant level. So there's a lot of macroeconomic trends happening. So what's, let's talk about operations first. Certainly businesses are doubling down on operations, including supply chain as one. Container costs, just one little uh, piece of information. Container costs went up almost uh, 10x during uh, the COVID time. So pre-COVID, it has been 10x. But it's come down almost 80x. So it's still 20% higher than pre-COVID numbers. Uh, but it's still yet to hit the books because we're beginning to see the numbers, but we will see that probably towards the end of the uh, end of this year or more perhaps 2023. Um, but demand is softening. Certainly, customer demand in direct-to-consumer industries, demand is softening. Choices and buying patterns of what uh, consumers are looking at is significantly different. We saw the buying trend of internal home-based uh, apparel uh, tires. People were procure procuring that or buying that quite a bit. And that went to more of outdoor sea or people were attending weddings or more formal clothes. Um, but also a lot of services-based shopping, as we saw. So just the buying patterns are shifting. But in general, demand is softening. Um, investors, investors are getting very cautious. There's a, I mean, you see the public uh, market behavior, but certainly even in the private industries, there's a fair amount of caution and care in terms of it's just a question of now. It's not a question of whether we are in a recession. We are absolutely in a recession. Uh, is it how long? How deep? Is it a year and a little bit of a little depth, but or is it much longer? Is it either a, a 12 month scenario or a three to five year scenario? And how deep? How bad? That is the question. So boards are getting up for it. Uh, the regulatory environment is quite uh, quite intense. A lot of regulations, as you saw, the compensation and uh, pay transparency regulation was passed in the last few weeks. 
And uh, so there's a fair amount of regulatory activities as well. So boards, executive leadership teams, CEOs are absolutely attacking this. Nobody's calling this yet a crisis, but uh, pretty much every leadership team and board is acting as though it is a crisis. Well, let's talk about boards, right? I mean, boards are taking a much more active role. Uh, you've seen a lot of activity given the fact that all these boards have now new responsibilities, anything from the ESG side of the house to, hey, what do you do with the metaverse, right? And, and this is kind of a wide range of governance uh, that's required at boards. So, so let's spend some time talking about what, what's top of mind for boards. And then uh, we'll jump in a little bit talking about what's hot in terms of the tech that boards care about or are concerned about. Yeah, uh, the boards are working very closely. Management is leading the work. Boards are very much concerned about operations and, and financial results and people and, and employees and how are they doing? How's the uh, labor market? How is uh, burnout? Burnout still has some prolonged gap. So boards are very much uh, focused on all of these. And I said, as I shared on the regulatory environment as well, but let's talk about the world of, uh, of metaverse. So this is one of your favorite topics, right, at uh, Constellation. Um, so I was looking at this metric. 75% of merchants say that there will be some kind of a proliferation and a ubiquitous acceptance of crypto and digital currencies in the next few years. And uh, if you look at the number of people with wallets, it's a very high number. And then you, you, the number of active wallets is much lesser, but still, Certainly, the world of crypto uh, and, and whether it's stable coins or otherwise, certainly that is a, a, a proliferation. But, uh, but let's not talk about that because it is, it's a somewhat of a controversial topic with CBDC and all the other topics. But focusing around blockchain for the enterprise, I was a, I've, I've reflected on it myself. I'm a, I'm a technologist and I've reflected on this. And I've always felt that uh, everything that's done with blockchains can be done with other technologies. So why all this complication and convolution? But the more I reflect on it, certainly supply chain, the multi-party activities, and it's individually each transaction looks as though it is between one party and a second party. But really, when you put the whole array, the whole gamut of the upstreams, the multitudes of hands in which products sales change hands in the logistics chain, and then ultimately as it gets to the customer, the supply chain is absolutely a multi-party ecosystem. And, uh, and the multiple reconciliation is still very much done on the ERPs of the world, or sometimes it's spreadsheets and copy based in the ERP. So that technology, so definitely blockchain has a role to play as it uh, goes into the future. And we've seen some successful implementations of the food trust, the trade lines, and these are actually functioning eco chains and, and ecosystems. And likewise, financial and third party health data is another important topic. Health data being brought together a single at a single patient level, contiguous health data, both the user generated as well as health system and diagnostics generated health data, being brought together for even in general the the betterment of the individual, as well as for the research and analytics, and uh, and that is that space is going to happen, and it's a very high likelihood that 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 space could happen in the web 3.0 world, and and some element of transformational data user experience. Right, the phone, phone has become a standard phone factor. It's the phone and the billions of phones that are out there are they going to be replaced within a short time frame to any of the newer devices that are coming up from Apple or anybody else? I don't know. But definitely there is a place for the newer devices which bring in the immersive experiences that when you compare that with other technologies or when you add other technologies such as internet of things and digital twinning, there is a fair amount of work. 
So where are the investors in this again? So whether it's layer one, whether it's DeFi, NFTs, profitability, or just creating for the enterprise, there is a fair amount of venture investment dollars that's going into that space. Enterprise is still slow, but I see that expanding and accelerating over the course of the next uh, several weeks and months. I'm also watching it. There is a general thesis Web2 will create a very popular, very closed and, uh, and, and, and consolidated centralized entities that benefited and value created from the Web2.0. Web3 is about a lot more of the democratization. And how would that look in a capital world? Beyond the technology decentralization, how would that look and how would boards and, and companies and looking at great value for the stakeholder as well as for the shareholder, how is that going to pan out? I think we have more questions than answers and boards are watching this. But let me jump in here because you gave us a smorgasbord of uh, technologies and great to have your view on them and how do you how do you rate them and where do you see them? The interesting question for me is, um, there's this moniker is uh, prepare for bad times and good times. We definitely had good times and then bad times invest, right? And invest means technology. What would be your top three investment priorities on the technology side? Picking out of the many, many that are available, just putting you on the spot here. Okay, and, okay so it has to be relevant. So the relevance is based on the topic of the timing for today. Right. So certainly number one is cost conservation. So where can technology play a role in staying still close to the customer, but how can companies conserve costs, which is a number one priority for every business that's a cost, that's a capital, and technology plays a big role in all of this. So that's number one. Number two, um, cybersecurity. So let's not drop the ball on cyber. And uh, it has to be a continuous investment. It has to be a continuous focus. And then I would look at, I'm always at this philosophy, the 70, 20, 10, or, or 75, 25, uh, with operational focus, transformation focus, and, and moonshots. I still think some moonshots have to be focused on or, or business launches, right? So as you launch the business and businesses, some businesses would be tech enabled. Some businesses as traditional businesses, but still significantly tech as a component. So the business investments will need to be crucial, but I also would say, take some moonshots, take one or two moonshots, the kind of innovation that happens now in the thick of the constraints, there is no better time to innovate than when you are under terrific or tremendous constraints as it is today. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And and what I would actually say too is like, you know, your work in boards is really important. You kind of understand how boards are thinking, you know, what they really, you know, are, are talking about. And some of the top topics, you know, that have been there for like the last five years, cybersecurity, right? Privacy, regulatory compliance, right? Uh, what's happening? And we're just about to get a whole onslaught of these coming from anything in the world of ESGs to, you know, just tightening government regulations uh, all around the world. Um, how do executive leadership teams, CEOs and boards view this? Yeah, cyber is a, is a hot topic. Never, it was never that it wasn't, but it still just continues to amplify because the, the proliferation of digital capabilities, the everywhere, the tech and data is present everywhere, the perimeterless world, the regulatory environment, and just the, uh, the, the vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities, the hackers and the adversaries. And Uber, we all saw the Uber hack last, Uber event last uh, uh, week. And we are all, many of us are customers of Uber as well. So you're particularly paying attention to what happened, how did it happen? And it is, it, to the extent I understand, and it's still a developing story, it sounds like a social engineering attack. And we have talked about it for so long. It's a social engineering attack. Somebody gave away their credentials. A kid came in, mapped their way into some privileged accounts and had access. So it's, this sounds like a story, a story we could have written 15 years back. 
So, and this happens to a company like Uber, that's a technology company. And, and I know they're going to take it off. And I absolutely believe in the resilience of companies like this and the leadership that is in these places, and they're going to take care of it. But, uh, but it makes you wonder what, what exactly is, is, um, is happening. I look at it in one or two parts, three parts. Number one, I expect every company to be good at the basics, right? So you have your vulnerability scanning, you've got your data loss prevention and controls, and you're, you've mapped out your NIST, the 18 major families to your critical controls, and you've measured your accuracy or, or your maturity in those, uh, in those elements, and you've reported based on that. Um, you have good user awareness training. So you are very good at the basics. I expect that. That is table stakes. But beyond that, I look at two major phenomena that I would I would see, which is I took something, a topic that has been talked around for a while, but certainly gathering momentum. And I would expect businesses and companies to go beyond just the topic, which is zero trust. Zero trust as a as a mindset, as a paradigm, as a as a philosophy, and embracing zero trust. Zero trust as a strategy. Going from implicitly, I'm going to trust you once I authenticate the first level of authentication, that implicit trust to more of an adaptive trust. And the third is a set of initiatives that then go and make that happen over the course of time. It's not going to happen overnight, but a set of initiatives, but certainly basics. Start with the basics. Isolate your end user from your core uh, jewels, your crown jewels. Then start working on the workload to workload, your, your server to server kind of uh, protection. The other one is also identity. It's such an important element, and we know the fundamental constructs and the philosophies of identity and attribution of identity and contextual and adaptive trust behind the identity, but it's time to go ahead and make that reality. And so that would be entirely, these are the kinds of topics that will be talked at the board, at the executive leadership teams, the CISOs are talking about that. But I also will say we have a responsibility in moving from talking about cyber as though it's just a technology topic to quantified risk oh yeah quantified in a business language and in a financial language so the crq crm of of translating the cyber risk into something that is meaningful to the boards and that is reportable and this is one of the key tenets of what some of the regulations that are being cooked at this point so i would expect that this is also the tech officers the elts are embracing that business translation of the cyber risk and start talking about that in the crqm language Great, 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 great points, Suja. Let me just change the gears. We'd love to talk about technology, but we know the people are equally important. Like when somebody calls, can I have your credentials too? Because I can't log in my own system. Right? Recently happened, we shouldn't name the company, but we named the company on the show already. So uh, what do you see happening on the people side, right? There's the talk of the great resignation, Ray calls refactoring, I call it the reassessment. We got quite uh, too. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you see the this working out on the people in the workplace side on the future of work side see that's a it, it perplexes me we're sitting here september 2022 and we all recall how september 2020 was it was tough it was bad we were all burnt out it was we were still in the thick of the pandemic the vaccine was yet to come it came in december but we didn't know it was when it was going to come or if it was going to come at all we saw the, the, the event that happened in, in, uh, in Minneapolis and the fires in California, it felt like apocalypse had, had descended upon Earth sometime this, this time two years back. It is not the same. The pandemic is certainly, I don't know whether it's entirely behind us, but nobody's wearing masks. We're all getting vaccinated, but most of us are. Um, but it's still, there is a war that's a new variable. The macroeconomics are not looking that great, but our batteries and the juices of human batteries have just completely drained. 
I still don't know why. I still try to figure out, and I would love to pick your thoughts, uh, older and brave. I would love to hear what you think about that. But the but the point is that is a burnout. That is a burnout, and that's why all these big shifts and the big movements that are happening in the zeitgeist of the latest one being the quiet quitting, and then I also heard quiet firing. It's like what is this happening? And then there's so much TikTok videos on okay, you're burnt out, quit. You're everywhere you see. It's not just on the business language; it's in every element of social media. So I don't have the magic bullet. Any nobody does. People are still figuring it out. Is it hybrid? Is it is it virtual? Is it on-site? Is it everything all of, and everything in between? Those different people are figuring it out. I I belong in the side of probably more. Let's make sure that people are able to get engaged and in an in-person environment. I'm a technologist. I, business technologist. I believe that. Um, people can do. People can solve many challenges with the technology, but in the case of interhuman connections and collaborations, for the right moments, in-person connections are necessary and essential. And I saw this metric today that there is a 153% increase in meetings since pre-COVID. 153% increase in meetings since pre-COVID, and 46% of them are double booked. This, this came from Microsoft, and they can see the percentages from Teams, right? Yep. That is ridiculous. This is an industry. This is no particular. This is collectively, as a human, as a, as an economy, that is too many meetings. That's too many overlaps. Too many people double tasking, multitasking during meetings. So this something has got to give. And I would say it is certainly a combination of leadership simplification, prioritization. Those have got to be up in front and center of uh, leadership teams and boards. Simplify, prioritize, and communicate. The simplify, prioritize, communicate. And then in terms of employees, it's it's that absolute, what is, it's not just engagement in the traditional way engagement was defined, but the purpose-driven engagement, the thriving, engagement scores are getting reshaped as the Thrive score, right? And the Thrive score, certainly there's an element of productivity, not the frantic productivity, but the right element of outputs and outcomes. So this is going to continue to evolve and leaders have a big role to play. Well, we're here with Suja Chandra. She is a multi-industry power executive uh, sitting on different boards. And really, really thank you for your insights and thank you for being here on Disrupt TV. Always a pleasure, buddy. Thank you. And thank you, Holger. Thank you, Suja. Cool. Wow. wow. <laughs> so fast, I couldn't ask her what the diploma kind of like written thing in the back of her background is. So I need some time to ask our next guest about what's happening in the world. <laughs> my traditional question here. We're here Joanne Moretti, Chief Revenue Officer at Fictive. Um, she's got 32 experiences, 32 years of experience in high tech and manufacturing industries, holding C level responsibilities in F200 companies like Jabel, Dell, and HP. And her career spans software engineering, sales, marketing, and product management roles. Um, and of course, she's been known for building top line growth uh, in each of these companies. And more importantly, she's now the chief revenue officer at Fictive. So thank you so much for being here. And I uh, really want to talk more about what's going on in terms of some of the trends you're seeing. And of course, what's happening in the industry. Ma prima, un benvenuto Giovanna. Sono così contento di avere un ospite che parla fluente in italiano. Unfortunately, non possiamo continuare. Unfortunately, Ray didn't do the bubble fish fast enough in the last <laughs> I send him the link, but he, he's not fluent yet, so we have to speak back to English. But uh, And last but not least, right, as we are at the compliment side, right, red and black glasses, that's the epitome. I'm not wearing, I wear my team shirt, but it's the away shirt, so it's red and white, but red and black, Forza Milan has to be said too, because how often do we have red um, and black glasses on the show, Ray? Very, very little often. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not aware. Red glasses already make my heart go faster, but red and black glasses, uh, Joanne, 
good choice. Thank you so much, Holger, and thank you so much, Ray. And piacere, mio piacere. Sono molto contenta uh, avere uh, sopra questo programma. Anyways, okay. listen, Suj is amazing. You have such great people on the show. Uh, what I loved was some of the things she talked about as far as, you know, business value. We got to talk differently and we've got to position cybersecurity differently because it's been years trying to get that message across. So hopefully it's, it's coming through. Um, so I'm here to talk about digital manufacturing. That's right. Yeah, we, we learned that you were bored in retirement. And uh, why on earth did you pick manufacturing? which is no longer being done in America or whatever. So uh, supposedly I was coming back to America, but, but digital manufacturing sounds certainly better. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so, you know, there's tons of problems we're trying to solve with digital manufacturing. I mean, Suja mentioned a few of them, right? Some of the, you know, obviously the inflation, the post-pandemic issues, workforce challenges, uh, port congestions, truckers that are protesting at borders, uh, container costs, you name it, and war. You know, not just trade wars, war, war. So there's a ton of, um, I think, solutions uh, and there's a ton of problems that digital manufacturing solves. And I'll try to explain what it is in a second. But what we're seeing is we're seeing, like you mentioned, Holger, this whole shift to not just made in America, but made in America's. Right. I'm going to stress that there are Central and South American manufacturing hubs that are just like booming right now. Right. Um, and, you know, co companies are going to these uh, hubs. I know this one really large U.S. company, I can't name their name, but uh, <laughs> they brought 400 molds back from China and put them into Mexico just recently. 400 molds means you're going to produce a lot of plastic, a lot of products, medical device products, consumer packaged products and things like that. So we're seeing it. Um, currently it's the of the maquiladora. That's right. Um, Kearney is saying, you know, 92% of executives are expressing positive sentiments about moving things back to the Americas. Um, 79% of those have already done something about it. 15 are still sort of evaluating. So all the shifts are happening. The problem is, you know, it's creating jobs and it's doing all this wonderful, you know, um, shift for us. There's not enough people. There's no. a labor problem. Yep. So, you know, we can't even get people to work in restaurants. We can't even get them to work in, you know, just regular service jobs. So we're going to be hard pressed. And that's where technology comes in. That's where digital manufacturing comes in. And that's where, you know, what we do um, at, um, at Fictive is coming, coming in just to drill down just a little bit on sort of where we are in this ecosystem. Uh, we decided we wanted to provide the the digital infrastructure for custom manufacturing and we decided that well before this job shortage or this shift happened or these all these big supply chain uh issues happened we decided because it's just too hard to build something it's really hard to build something and it's especially hard to build something if it's low order sort of quantities low quantities that's really hard it's easy to build thousands hundreds of thousands and millions of things and those contract manufacturers like Foxconn and Flex, they'll take you open arms. They want large volume. But if you got to build something sort of low volume or in the new product development stage, it's difficult. And so engineers are spending a lot of time doing administrative work and not engineering. Sourcing managers and engineers are trying to source and vet 
and sift through thousands of smaller players to try to get that sort of complex part or product made. So I we need, I need to jump in here and ask this, right? There's so many technologies which were 20 years ago or until thousand like marketplaces where the thing which would be happening and it didn't happen because now we know the technology wasn't there. One of the things when you say that remind me was the one-to-one -one marketing, the mass customization. Are you saying we're ready now for mass customization product, lot of one, finally, thanks to digital manufacturing? Am I putting words in your mouth or? No, not at all. That's we're getting extremely, like that's where we're getting to. Uh, we what we've done is we've virtualized an entire manufacturing network so that you as a user as an engineer really have a whole manufacturing set of capabilities and capacity global capacity at your fingertips that's unheard of so now i can design and make parts without worrying about where something's going to get built or is there capacity or can someone do one of something we've solved that problem Right, we're putting manufacturing at the fingertips of the engineers, and so this mass customization, this personalization, is all happening. How do we do it? How else? Cloud, right? Cloud computing is what we're doing in hardware right now, and hardware development is exactly what happened in software development. Exact same thing. When you virtualize all these manufacturing companies and partners, and you provide ERP in, in it and workflow capabilities. We provide 3D visualization so you can do design for uh, manufacturability feedback with the, with manufacturers and so forth. You provide all those tool sets to these engineers, they can build hardware almost at the speed of software. And that's what we're trying to do is to try to accelerate that time to market, try to accelerate, you know, getting you getting you to market quickly instead of 33% of your time wasted sourcing, vetting uh making sure the credentials are there doing site visits calling people in china at 4 a.m in the morning those are headaches and engineers don't want those headaches you want to talk about the future of work they want that ability to get what they need when they need it they want the instant gratification just like any other technology consumer or user um, and most of the people now we're working with are digital natives they want to be able to look at things, have transparency. They want to see the breadcrumb trail. Where is their part in the manufacturing process? Just like I'm watching Uber and a taxi coming to me. I can see something being manufactured. I can see it getting on the dock. I can see it being shipped to me. I can see those things now. So I would say to you, you don't need a factory anymore. Psych, it's an empty pallet. What do we do now? Just <laughs> No, but but you're you're talking about everything from new product development acceleration to you know MRO digital inventories to engineer to order right your ability to get rapid production. I mean these are things that weren't there before, right? These are new technologies, new think processes that are designed just like the way we look at agile software and agile software development. Um, but I want to go back to your other piece, which was which was interesting, right? We've got nine point two billion or nine wow nine point two billion people in the world and. That's probably what would forecast at the end of 2030. And then after that, it's a population decline, right? And so we can't find enough people fast enough. And I think we're going to keep seeing that for quite some time. Um, so what does that mean, right? I mean, if we need to manufacture, if we need to get products to people, if we need to actually you know, come up with a concept and ideas, do we have less teams? Do we have less people to do this? And what level of automation do you see coming forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where, you know, that's where all this technology comes in, whether it's 3D printing, you know, you walk into factories now, Ray, 
I've been into like large, and I'm talking hundreds of thousands of square feet manufacturing yeah. facilities. Okay, big, even here in the US. And I walk in and I go, where's the people? But guess what? They're programmers. There's no factory workers like we used to think about it. They're actually sitting there programming machines, whether they're CNC machines, whether they're injection molding tools, setting up tools and machines, it's bending, bending metal, whatever it is you want to see happening in a manufacturing plant, it's automated. It's happening through data, through cloud technology, through mobile technology. Heck, some people are applying AR to it so you can have remote sort of development cycles or or sort of, uh, you know, corrections and uh, issues on the plant, you know, floor. There's all kinds of technologies being brought into it. When we figure out, when we're sitting there trying to figure out where are we going to send this piece of work to, our AI engine is looking at a bunch of different factors, right? It's looking at what material, how much lead time do you need? How many quantities do you want? What process do you want to use? You want to 3D print it? You want to injection mold it? What do you want to do with it, right? That AI engine is kicking in and doing the work of a hundred people. People, yeah. Right? Massive. So programming and coding and technology, it's everywhere. It's on the plant floor, it's in the design centers, uh, it's it's in between in the logistics and the supply chain. Technology's weaving into everything right now. I, I love it because it's like, you know, I was a software person and then I, you know, suddenly fell in love with manufacturing when I went to Jable and it's like now my worlds are coming together and that's why Holger that's why I couldn't retire I'm like no way there's too many things going on here it's too, too exciting to retire technology field right so it's getting more and more excited as we agreed on the pre-show I don't know how people in other industries do it probably that's where the, all the people who do the good charitable work do in other places certainly not us because technology is more interesting but let me break the lance for the people right we know what happened the Elon Musk factory in Newark right uh robots from the top from the roof and it didn't work right people had to come back but in general totally right it's going to be all about the people but there's deep social challenges uh, which come out of um, digital manufacturing trends right if you look forward what do you see on the horizon how can we mitigate them what does it mean for the future of work in a digital manufacturing world yeah, I mean, what's what I saw stuff happening, you know, during the pandemic, pandemic because I was close to fictive during that time, and uh, I sat on their board for sort of a year before I took this role full time, and what I saw was something amazing. I saw that the fictive network gave access to manufacturers that would have never had access to some of these big projects. Like there's people building parts that are going on to NASA rockets. Mm. That guy would never have had that opportunity. This is an access builder. This is giving more income equity. This is giving people opportunity to focus on what they love manufacturing instead of paperwork and sales and marketing systems and ERP systems and order invoicing and all this kind of stuff, they're manufacturing. So our partner network is as important as our customer network. All these ecosystems coming together now where you may have a really specialized person, like I said, having a part end up, you know, in a, in a EV sort of uh, car, right? So those are, those are things that warm my heart because I feel like everyone's getting opportunities now to be part of this sort of evolution and, and revolution of, of technology uh, through, through technology. So it's exciting. I, I see that as part of the future of work. Again, engineering, getting time back, doing what they love, 
Um, I see dirty factories maybe that could close down because we're offering these networks of already sort of built capacity. So why do we have to keep these factories open? There's all kinds of social and environmental goodness that comes out of digital manufacturing. Just 3D printing alone. If you look at 3D printing, hooger, the amount of waste that gets eliminated with 3D printing. Remember, this is an additive manufacturing process. That means you're adding the exact amount of material you need to add, right? You're not cutting and chopping and shaping material. And there's waste with some of the other processes, the traditional. 3D printing is like hugely environmentally friendly, right? Because there's less waste. So I, I think that digital overall is bringing about some, some fantastic um, you know, uh, innovations and, and uh, allowing us to do more, allowing everyone to build. Well, hey, pontificating a little bit further. Um, so we see those big trends coming, right? We see a confluence of crises, which is the interest rates, inflation, inventory, invasion, infection. They're all happening uh, and they are constraining our supply chains that are out there. Um, how fast can we actually get back to nearshoring or reshoring our manufacturing capabilities for, for example, like medicine and pharmaceuticals or for basic materials that you would need for your military and parts, right? Simple things like that. Is that something that happens in 10 years, five years, three years? Like how fast can things like that happen? It's absolutely happening. Um, make no mistake. Like I said, I'm seeing companies bringing stuff back. Like a famous toy company brought out their entire supply um, So it's definitely happening. I would like by the time everything sort of settles into place, I would probably say, you know, five years if it settles like we think it's gonna settle. Um, but again, it's labor. So the more we can use our technology, the faster it's gonna accelerate. If we think we're gonna, you know, go in higher, and some of these factories need it, you know, if we think we're going to hire 100,000 people and not sort of reinvent the workflows and reinvent the processes, we're wrong. It's not going to happen that way. We have to leverage technology. We have to think smarter. We have to streamline these processes. We have to give time back to people because there's fewer, there's not enough people. So, yeah. Well, it's yeah, tricky, right? When you have to do something here. fast, you rely on your experience in the past and you repeat, right? Because yeah. you know that you can live on repeat. And now you might be repeating the wrong way of doing manufacturing for the future. And doing something new is always perceived as risky, right? So the art is for people like you to say, you have to do it and the risk is acceptable low enough. And you might be even faster manufacturing your first things back in the Americas. Like, like you said, the Americas, because I think that's yeah. the main, main point. Yeah. I have a story yeah, I have to tell you about speed because it's just mind boggling. So trans right, you got 60 seconds. Okay, Transmed <laughs> 7 cancer diagnostic device. Yes. So tons of backing, DuPont, Abbott, yep. you know, big investment. Um, they basically said to us using this network, this digital manufacturing approach, save them so much on building out their own infrastructure. They accelerated product development by eight years. This is from Dr. James Vetter's yep. voice, not mine. You can read it in the case study. He said, cause I didn't wow. have, I could rely on just the engineers I had. I could rely on just the infrastructure I had, which was basically nothing. I came to Fictive, I used digital, and it could be any digital manufacturing, not just Fictive, but I used digital manufacturing. I felt like I had 20 engineers. I felt like I had a hundred factories and I, I didn't have to set anything up. And you gave me production ready quality. So 
people are taking advantage of it. There's a ton of great case studies we've got on our website around companies doing this. These are multi-sided networks. It's a hot conversation point. We'll definitely be talking about digital supply chains at Constellations Connected Enterprise, which I know you're going to be at. So, hey, thank you for being here. We are here with Joanne Moretti, Chief Revenue Officer at Fictive. And of course, she does a million other things. You can follow her on Twitter at Joanne Moretti, uh, M-O-R-E-T-T-I. Nice. So, hey, thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you so much. Ciao, ciao. Grazie mille, very, very cool. Wow, we've gone from big industries to digital supply chains. And now, of course, we're going to go to a very, very hot topic, which is really yourself. How do you actually improve yourself? How do you interest yourself in a career? So we've got none other than Christy Hunter R. Scott, award-winning advisor, speaker, and author of the book, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. So Christy is an award-winning advisor, speaker, and author of the book, which we're going to be talking about, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. But more importantly, she's a leading expert on how we can harness the power of intentional intentional risk-taking to create more dynamic and vibrant careers and organizations. She's a Rhodes Scholar and she's been named on the Thinkers 50, one of our favorite places of top management thinkers likely to shape the future of business. And she was also elected and selected for the Biennial Thinkers 50 Talent Award shortlist of the top global thought leaders in the field of talent management, one of Holger and I's favorite topics. So, um, and so today we're going to spend some time really talking about what's happening in the book and I think more importantly, how you can take advantage of those learnings. So welcome to the show, Christy. Thanks, Ray, and thanks, Holger. It is an absolutely an honor to be here. And I just wanted to mention as we start, I mean, to follow Joanne and Suja, given the topic of my work and research, is such an honor. Just to take a step back, I mean, we're looking at a chief revenue officer. We're looking at a chief digital and information officer. We're looking that at women that have truly made bold moves in often very male-dominated industries. And, you know, looking at their areas of expertise, it's manufacturing, tech, cybersecurity. They're sitting on board. So thank you so much for having me. And, and just the exposure to their stories is phenomenal. Yeah. Well, welcome, Chris. It's great to have you. Very important topic because like we heard from uh, Giovanna, as I keep calling her, um, you're running out of hands, right? Uh, of the 9.2 billion 50-50s male-female, we cannot have women leaving the working place. But recent studies have been showing that uh, one in four women plans considers to retiring, downshifting their career. Is it a good sign? Is it a bad sign? What should we think about this? I definitely don't think it's a, it's a good sign. So let me... Well, work-life to... balance is important, right? So for male, female, it doesn't matter. I'm just, just saying for yeah. this wise, that's a good side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, I think we need new models of work and home. And when we look at women downsizing or leaving the workplace, it's very easy to go to one reason. Like someone years ago, I did a study and we asked, why are women around the age of 30 or in their 30s leaving the workforce? And the majority of talent executives said, because of babies. And the majority of women said, that's actually not the case. And so we often try to oversimplify why this is happening. Like, oh, she would have left anyway. She just had a child. But that is hardly ever the full story. And it's usually compounding factors over time that lead to this. It might be being in a place that doesn't, and we heard a little bit about this before in your discussions around that doesn't offer agile working options or flexibility. It might be looking up um, 
in your leadership sector and seeing no women or people that reflect the life that you want to have. It might be not having the mentors and sponsors and, you know, seeing other men get sponsored, but you're not. Um, it might be not getting actionable feedback. So it's usually multifactorial, but we often oversimplify why people are leaving. Yeah, no, we're seeing a lot of simplification between that, but every factor is a little bit complicated. There are broader trends, right? Yep. And a lot of those broader global trends are some of the reasons that, you know, sometimes write a book. So what inspired you to write Begin Boldly? I mean, what did you see? What was the catalyst? Uh, how did you get there? Yeah, so it might be helpful just to give a little bit of background kind of on what my career involves, because that's how I really liked that. So I really have four pillars and my entrepreneurial career, which is one strategic advisory with companies where I work with them on creating more inclusive and dynamic and vibrant workplaces. The second is coaching individual women or leaders. Um, the third is speaking engagements and lectures at different universities, facilitating programs. That's why I'm in London right now. Um, and then the final is research and writing. And it's interesting because I've always wanted to look at this, both the organizational and the individual. And I was really hesitant to write a book that says, women, here's how you can navigate the state of play. I really wanted to change the state of play, right? Rather than put the onus on women. But the reality is we need to do both in parallel. And what I found working with organizations was the majority of organizations have women's programs, if they do, at the senior level management executive level. And yep. it's too yep. little too late. I was reading studies that said women were lagging men in compensation and title from year one on the job. There was a Harvard Business Review article that came out and said women are lagging in aspiration and confidence by year two. And yet we're waiting till they're senior to really focus on them. So I thought, how do we equip women earlier in their careers to make bold moves and navigate the workplace as it is? Very, very interesting to see in here. One of the typical things which are raised in this connotation is the aspect of risk taking, right? So yeah. and generally, women are more risk averse. I can very much relate to it because I'm super risk averse myself. <laughs> uh, but, but it kind of like hinders them in the workplace, right? So and uh, what 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 is the advice? What what is the reimagining of risk that women should take uh, from your perspective? Sure. Um, so I always get hesitant, um, despite the fact I've seen trends, I always want to caveat it by um, not kind of wanting to take a broad brush around all women. However, studies from the Hewlett Packard study onwards have showed really distinct things. And it's that study we often hear repeated that men will apply for a job when they've got 60% of the qualifications and women won't apply till they have 100 or 110. So that's an example, a very small, distinct example of risk taking and how women might shy away from it more than men. I think what I've heard is not that women don't aspire to take risks. Most women, if you ask them, do you want to be bolder and braver? They do. Even most men do. But they're really struggling to translate that aspiration into action. And that's what this book is designed. It's designed to fill that gap between your aspirations and your action. And so I did studies and talked to women trying to figure out why does that gap exist? How do I create tools and methods and frameworks and concepts to address that gap? And how do I give people a method to take risks? Because most people say, it's not that I don't want to, it's just, I don't know where to start. I don't have a method or a formula. So it's not telling you, Holger, to go off, I've never paraglided before, and I'm going to jump off a mountain blindfolded and go for it. 
No, I'm not it's gonna do it. Having, <laughs> it's about having a tool and a method and training and thinking about how to do that in a really strategic right. and intentional way. Well, you know, when I read your book, I mean, you said the biggest risk is not taking a risk at all. And I thought was probably the most powerful statement um, from your book, uh, which is really about that. And and why is it so hard, right? Why is it so hard for um, at least getting into agile experimentation or uh, at least being able to kind of like help you to take those steps to actually enhance your strategy on risk taking? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard for so many different reasons. I, I mean, when it, my studies showed that we have an innate fear of failure, which we know. Um, of course, we all feel failure. <laughs> of course. And so I talk about um, thinking about failure in really new terms. And instead of avoiding it or trying to mitigate the chance of failure or minimize it, that is not what this book is about. It is about how to leverage failure for further growth than you would have had than a consistent choice to play it safe. So imagine you're consistently playing it safe throughout your career. You might get to here, right? But if you take a leap and then fail, you're likely to learn and have insights that will propel you further than that consistent choice to play it safe. We also deal with uncertainty and fear of uncertainty. And so mm -hmm. that's almost separate and distinct from failure. And it took me a while to really understand how different those two were. And we'd yes. rather, you know, choose the comfort of control rather than the, you know, the unknown. And so it, it talks about the mindsets. And Ray, you just spoke about that, that agile mindset, that irrespective of the outcome of my risk taking, I can figure this out. I have the tools to make the most of this. And that is such a critical mindset shift. Yep. Very important point. Let me go a little bit off script because I need to ask you something which is, I've been pondering uh, since, since I'm working, basically. I mean, obviously, women and men are different, right? What I've seen in my career is that way too often women who are in executive position are copying a male leadership style, um, management style. Uh, is it my just my coincidence of seeing this? Is it the problem? Because I'm thinking there should be a more female way of managing things. I'm disappointed when I search in Google on the academic side, right? That nobody has written the book or nobody has come up with the research on that and saying this. Uh, both both genders have their pros and cons, right? There's certain are in certain situations better. And you talk about uh, diversity inclusion, right? When is the job to make a woman CEO? When is the time to make a man a CEO? Any research and any views points on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you uh, went outside the box here with this question, because this is something that has been of interest to me since I was 22 and went on the Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford to study women's studies. And my thesis was actually exactly on that. And you didn't know that before this show. So it's an interesting question. I was like towards a gendered style of management. And should we be talking about women's unique leadership and feminine capabilities as distinct from men versus pushing them into a mailbox. And, and look, there's lots of different pools of thought on this, even among some of the top gender researchers and theorists. I can tell you what I personally think Jeez. is that we need to remove gender from leadership. Hmm. And in the sense that so many people say, harness your unique feminine capabilities. Well, what does that really mean? And for someone that doesn't show up as feminine on a spectrum or someone that shows up in a different way or identifies differently or has the intersectionality of identities of race, ethnicity, sexual preference, what does feminine mean? And I think we risk getting people into a little box and, you know, Christy is a successful CEO should show up like this as feminine. 
And if she doesn't, then we don't give space for actual authentic leadership. Now, Holger, I agree. You may see, and there's many women that even attest to this, women almost fitting a masculine ideal. And that isn't productive either. What I think we need to do is remove gender as much as we can from the leadership equation and say, this is what an effective leader looks like, irrespective of your male, female, whether you identify separately or whatever the intersectionality of your identity is. And that's the only way I truly believe we can have an inclusive definition of leadership that doesn't put lots of people in a bind. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing that. And in leadership, you know, we've seen different models of leadership that are out there. And we really try to balance, right, you know, some of the important areas of, of leadership. Um, but one other aspect, you know, of being successful is having a good networking capability. And you yeah. spend a lot of time talking about the need for networking and why it's potentially sometimes awkward or intimidating for women. Uh, what's your best advice on, on how to approach a networking opportunity to make it more comfortable and, and productive? Yeah. First of all, don't call it networking. <laughs> so, <laughs> simple. Yeah, let's but, start there. <laughs> so. I truly believe, and I talk about this throughout the book, um, that language and how we frame things can either elicit action or inhibit action. So how we label things has the power to really transform our career. And the majority of individuals who I've coached, when I say go to a networking event, oh, they feel almost like dirty or like they're trying to sell something or be self-serving. But when I've said, just go out and connect with people, form relationships, think about that, make meaningful connections, make friends, it, it actually results in better results. And there, there was a study years ago that was done and they put two groups into a scenario and one group was told, you know, go make friends at a cocktail party. And the other group was like, go out and make <laughs> a professional network. And who do you think created more meaningful connections? It's the people that were told to make friends. And so mm -hmm. I actually think that how we frame this is so, so powerful. And so I think moving away from that term, particularly for women, will actually just enhance your ability to network um, more strategically and intentionally. And the last thing, Ray, is really um, so many people get nervous because we go to a networking and we think, oh, I need my elevator pitch. I need to focus on what I need to say. And I always say we underestimate the power of asking questions. And there's a number of studies that show that curiosity and question asking leads to likability and more chances of a follow-up conversation, even in speed dating scenarios. So my other advice, other than focusing on reframing networking is focus just as much as on what you wanna ask as what you wanna say. And that is how meaningful connections are really built. You know, I completely agree. We need to move away from being so transactional in those networking meetings to finding the people that you want to engage with. And one of the things that you're completely right, we, we I say this all the time, I don't judge people by their answers. I judge people by the questions they ask because that kind of tells that level of curiosity or how they think or, you know, what's important to them. And, and that's a very, very powerful tool. I have to channel Vala here. He would say now beginner's mindset, always have the curiosity, right? That's a, like a red string of him saying on the show, right? I and mean, it's the right thing. But all the network, as great as it is, ultimately, when you take a new job, a new position, a new role, it's about negotiation, right? And we know that men and women negotiate differently, right? As a, as a father of four daughters, right? What kind of like advice do you have for women how to negotiate more successfully? Holger, congrats to you. Four daughters is no small feat. So, um, no, your daughters. <laughs> um, so studies show that men are more likely to view negotiation as a game 
and women are more likely to relate it to going to the dentist. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the, the same thing is true around the language and framing in terms of eliciting action or inhibiting action. I've noticed that when I say go into a negotiation with my clients, people get nervous, anxious. But when I say, you know, what if you made a courageous ask uh, for a promotion or a package or a title that more accurately reflected your value? And I'm actually in London because I'm running a session on this on Monday on making courageous asks and being a courageous advocate for yourself. And that reframing of ne negotiation is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. But I think that we can all approach this strategically and intentionally. You shouldn't go into these things without thinking about what's your intention, what questions you're going to ask. And again, the common theme from the networking piece is asking questions and negotiations very powerful. Adam Grant gave this TED talk years ago, and it was on the power of powerless communication. And he um, quoted the research, I believe it was Alison Fregal, who looked at the power of questions in negotiation. And she just showed that you can be likable and competent and more persuasive if you ask questions, what would you do in my position? What do you think the next stage is for me that you don't? No. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing these as important things to ask. I think people need to have these life skills with them. Those life skills are the ones that kind of help you move ahead and, of course, make your career much more enjoyable with the folks you're working with. Quick question for you. So now you've got the book in play. You're all super excited. Um, what's next? What's the next book from the research that you have? Because now you're engaging with people in the field. You're putting the workshops together. People are bringing you in to come speak. You know, What are you hearing? Yeah, I'm... So I love it. What's the next book? <laughs> I know. I get stuck say, there. I don't know if there's a next book because it's, <laughs> you know, you put a blood, sweat, tears, everything into the book. But I will tell you what I would like to do. And um, I really admire the platform you have because I think internet TV is the way of the future. And the idea that's kind of boiling in me, and I often get to think about when I step away from my day to day, when I do during business travel, is that there's this quote that really resonates with me that you cannot be what you cannot see. Yes. And there, and I think it is so powerful. And there have been studies that show that aspiration is directly linked to visibility. So if we wanna impact the aspirations of the next generation of women who are coming up, we've gotta increase the visibility of Suja and Joanne and the women on these, on these of women that are doing that. So we don't think about ourselves and careers in limited options or just in the influencer options. And so I'd love to create a video platform or an interview platform where I highlight the stories of truly bold women in their careers and their life choices and their love choices and their adventure choices and, and really say, you know, to other women, like, here's the things you can aspire to, because I believe if they see it more, that again yeah. will impact those aspirations. No, you got the idea of what we're doing here. We're just trying to yeah. do that across the board to get people there. Please definitely check out her book. It's a great start. Risk, reward, refine, repeat. And remember, I think something part two is figure out how to build your curiosity and networking yeah. and connectivity. And part three and four, I think, was mindset, the courageous mindset. And then, of course, how to get to the agile mindset, a wonderful book for folks that are looking at how to improve themselves, especially women. And you know what? I read the book and learned a ton, too. So, um, hey, thank you so much for being on the show today. We are here with Christy Hunter Arscott, an award-winning advisor, speaker, and author of the book, Begin Boldly, and follow her at C. Hunter Arscott with two T's on Twitter. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Holger. Wow. Wow.
<laughs> so there we have it. Another action-packed episode of Disrupt TV, but more importantly, a lot of lessons learned three powerful leaders in terms of teaching us what's there, what's important in some very important topics from anything around digital supply chain to what we learned about, you know, building your career, building your leadership capabilities internally. And of course, understanding what's happening in terms of the global environment, uh, from not only the board level, but the executive leadership team level. So amazing sessions. What did you learn? Yeah. Right. What did you learn, Holger? Passionate about, I, I'm sorry to jump in, but I love how passionate they are on what they do, right? Because with passion, you know that you're doing something which makes a difference for people and that makes them inspirational. It's great to have an episode with three women guests here. We shouldn't talk about gender, with three great guests, but um, I think the inspiration part has to be gender specific because otherwise the relatability doesn't work. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a gender issue at all. Yeah. No, no. Amazing things that are out there. Amazing things going on. Holger, you're out in the field. We see you everywhere at every single event. Real quickly, before we cut through the show, uh, what are you seeing in the marketplace? What kind of interesting trends that you noticed lately? Uh, I give you 60 seconds. Well, the interesting thing is uh, I love it because my research area is real, right? Enterprise acceleration is there. We heard from Joanne how it's being changed in, in manufacturing. Uh, we heard it in terms of uh, uh, how it works from the IT side, from Suja, and uh, to a certain point, right, how can I make my company better? You can also learn that from what Christy said before, right? So and it's happening all over the place. Companies are restarting. It's now going to be really interesting because before with the technology, we were always in this up economy, right? Now is the first time we get in a potential down economy. And the question I would have asked Zuja, how do boards learn? Right. So, so anybody 40 years ago was last big inflation in the world. Right. And nobody was uh, working at the time. You cannot relate to this. So to a certain point, boards are in the same situation like in the pandemic situation, first pandemic of a lifetime, also the first big succession lifetime. So we have some interesting time coming ahead. Companies have to become more agile. This is wonderful. Well, hey, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Next week, episode number 295, Teresa Barrera, CMO of Publicist Sapient, or Publicist Sapient, as they call it, Brian Reeves, EVP, Chief Belong Diversity and Equity Officer at UKG, and of course, Cindy McGovern, author of Sell Yourself, How to Create, Live, and Sell a Powerful Personal Brand, and founder of Orange Leaf Consulting. So thanks for tuning in, and of course, have an amazing, amazing weekend. So cool. All right. 